0: This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at BNE.eu. So, hi everyone, I'm here today with Professor Thane Gustafsson, who's a professor of international relations at Georgetown in Washington and has been following the Russia uh, story very closely, he wrote a very nice piece um, the other day, which we he kindly uh, agreed to let us repost in, in BNE about the whole Avdavaz saga, the maker of the Lada, um, which is a great story and that has completely collapsed. So Thane, thank you for joining me. Great, great pleasure to have you here.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, Ben. And the only surprising thing is that our paths haven't crossed uh, mm-hmm. Before, well, they have now, they have now. <laughs> as our lives have intertwined, yeah. uh, I go back almost as far as you do, maybe farther. Uh, my first exposure to the Soviet Union was actually in Soviet Kiev. Uh, when I went there as a, an exchange student, a stajur, mm-hmm. uh, during one of our brief periods of thaw in the early 1970s. Gosh. It was a great place to be, but it was a Russian-speaking town in those days.
0: yes. I started my career in Eastern Europe, the first place I was ever uh, was Kiev, Kiev in May 93. And I agree, it's a gorgeous place to live, uh, although there was nothing there in those days. But why don't we dive in? I mean, the the question of the day um, is, are sanctions working? And there's been a lot of debate about this. Um, And then, of course, there was this famous report from Yale, which says the economy has collapsed. And we did a, a deep dive into that, and the picture's a lot more confused, and obviously those who say it hasn't collapsed are pointing to this massive current account that is actually making more money than it's ever made in its life. Um, nevertheless, the technological sanctions and equipment bans that have been put on are extremely damaging, permanently damaging. And so the other side of the debate is saying, well, look, yeah, the sanctions are working. It's just we're not seeing the effect of them at the moment. They'll take a little while to kick in. I just wondered if you had a view on where we stand, you know, to what extent have they failed or they're just delayed or what do you think is going to happen?
1: Well, Ben, I've been trying to organize that question in my own mind. And as you've been writing as well, it is complicated. And it's also um, generating all kinds of over hasty generalizations. Um, I think, first of all, one has to, uh, well, first of all, in, in broad brushstrokes, uh, the sanctions are clearly have having an impact. They will continue to have an impact, perhaps even more, as time goes on. And um, so to put this in perspective, what we have put in place in, in very hasty response to the Russian invasion is a system of sanctions A network, you might even say a a web of sanctions coming out of the United States, the EU, Canada, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that go far beyond anything that has ever been attempted before. So we're talking about a a high stakes, high roller experiment uh, on a scale that uh, is totally unique against an economy larger and more developed and more powerful than any that has ever been subjected to sanctions before, let alone such uh, sweeping, sweeping ones. So we're so in uncharted
0: territory here, are we? I mean, we, we're in uncharted territory here. We, we are no... in
1: totally uncharted territory. Um, and that combined with the continuing war makes this a very uh, sensitive and dangerous uh, area of social science experimentation, if you like.
0: Do you think oh. um, though the West has underestimated, because uh, they brought out, the thing that shocked was not only the sanctions, but what they included, the, the the seizing of the central bank's money, which was just not even on the radar before this happened. That's and right. also the SWIFT sanctions, which were seen as a nuclear option. And they came in on day two with Swiss count. So they've really hit hard. But at the same time, in retrospect, sitting where we are today, six months on, You can say that um, the West thought those were going to be crushing sanctions because they brought out the big guns on day one, day two. And yet it seems that the West has underestimated both Russia's resilience uh, and the robust nature of the economy, which is actually now coming back to not normal, but certainly it's doing a lot better than it should be. Do you think they underestimated um, the, the Russian economy?
1: Yes, on the whole, yes. Uh, I think there's a persistent belief in the United States and in Europe, which you've encountered, I'm sure for many years, uh, a persistent belief that that Russia is an underdeveloped country um, and uh, that its level of uh, industry, et cetera, is is primitive. Um, That turns out to be true in some areas, but not at all in others. And that's part of what makes the analysis a challenge. To organize the thing in your mind and in your listeners' minds, uh, Ben, I would suggest this. You have to separate, first of all, by, by, uh, by sector. The financial sanctions clearly have had one kind of impact. The uh, sanctions that uh, were applied against brand names in, the, in, uh, con- in consumer goods and retail, such as McDonald's, that's another kind of impact. The sanctions that have hit the auto industry yeah. and uh, um, the electricity sector. That's another kind of impact. And, devastating and finally the devastating. Section, sanctions that have been named at individuals and particularly the oligarchs, that's yet another kind of impact. So right there, differentiate by sector to begin with. S- second, organize by time timeframe. Um, the initial impact was actually quite devastating in the initial weeks. But the Russian Central Bank um, and the finance ministry responded very quickly, very creatively. It's a good team. We've known that for a long time. Uh, um, Elvira Nabiulina, the, the chair of the Russian Central Bank, is very good. So that was the initial phase. Then you go into the middle range, where we are now, and we start talking about the secondary impact and also initial retaliation by the, by the Russians. So that's all about oil and gas. Uh, by the way, for your listeners, yes, indeed, the Russians are making a pile of money on the high energy prices, but that's turning out to be a problem because they're sitting on so much hard currency that it's driving the ruble exchange rate mm-hmm. way up and they've, they've not been able to rein it back in. So then finally, the third phase, which is, I think, what ultimately you and I are most interested in. Starting a year or two out, what is the long-term impact of sanctions? Because the fact is, we're likely to be in the sanctions world indefinitely.
0: Mm. Yes, it's the same as the um, the what are they called uh, from the seventies, um, with Soviet Jews. The um, I've forgotten it now, but it took it took decades to, to get rid of those, and I don't see the sanctions coming off. I mean, then there's um, a longer-term question here. To what extent do you think the world has been divided and that we're into a new Cold War? Because Putin quite clearly is looking to the global south. Uh, China obviously is the key, the anchor to that relationship, and China is on board within sort of pragmatic limits uh, because it needs to keep its exports to, to the West going. Um, but then they're looking, you know, countries like Vietnam, uh, we've written quite a lot about uh, Russia in Africa, Lavrov was just there on a tour and was well met and they're offering arms, brain, money, nuclear power technology and they're being well received and through to Latin America it's um, another region which is, you know, broadly supporting Russia, but it's not going to be a division like the old one, because that was based on ideology, communism versus capitalism. And and this time round, we're all capitalists. And so all of those countries will want to keep relations with the West. So there's gonna be some sort of more complicated fudge. So can we even call it a cold war? I mean, how do you cut that up?
1: Well, of course, I'm a professor. So you've asked me a professor's question <laughs> and, um, So I'll I'll try not to natter on, Um, but I just wonder here's a here's a challenge response for you in one word. um, How do you like that from a professor Uh, (laughs) in one word that maybe the uh, coming world is neither capitalism nor. um, uh, communism. What's what's the other word, but rather. rather mercantilist is a word that we used to use uh, back in the 19th century, where uh, each country tries to defend its own turf, um, tries to export more than it imports. Of course, that's the great flaw in mercantilism. Um, And uh, basically it's a um, beggar thy neighbor, each dog in front of its own kennel, and um, the devil takes the hide most.
0: The Russians are definitely taking that line and mercantile uh, relationships, and and Lavrov specifically was, you know, bearing gifts when he went. Grain for Africa is obviously a key one, but I discovered that there's a whole bunch of nuclear power stations that are going to go up. I mean, there's one in South Africa, but They're about to build or in the process of building one in Egypt, and I forget the others, I think Zimbabwe and Zambia. Zambia definitely um, have plans for a Russian nuke uh, power station. Whereas if we look at our sides, they're talking about values and rules-based world and, you know, um, respect for international law. And it looks a lot more ideological, but I don't think, I didn't get the impression, particularly in Africa, that that went down very well with the African nations. And they were looking at Russia and like, no, the Russians are gonna bring money in business. So in that sense, it seems to play devil's advocate that the Kremlin strategy is the more appropriate one in terms of getting all these countries on board. Do you, do you think that's the case or are we about business too?
1: Well, I agree with that, particularly where Africa is concerned. Um, the outsiders, the Chinese in the first instance and the Russians and for that matter, the rest of us are welcome so long as we're bringing money, so long as we reinforce the existing power structures. Mm. Um, let's face it, oil revenues, for example, from the Western multinationals, they don't actually benefit the local economies, they benefit the local elites. That money ends up in Switzerland. Um, so the Chinese were very welcome, for example, with the... Uh, the um, Belt and Road Initiative in places like Zambia and Kenya, uh, so long as they were bringing in money and manpower, thank you. So we can build some railroads. But the the oversight, the supervision was so poor, and the price tag to the Chinese so high, that the Chinese are discovering that the Belt and Road Initiative is in fact not the great instrument that they imagined it would be. doesn't buy you all that but much influence soon as the project goes broke your influence disappears i think the russians are going to discover the same thing except that the russians don't have nearly as much money to spend on their equivalent of the belt and road initiative take nuclear power as a case in point every one of those nukes has been financed by the russian government
0: yeah yeah
1: um to
0: change tack slightly um There's an issue with the state supporting uh, Ukraine. And although they've talked about and have provided a lot of weapons um, and another package just recently, another billion, and the Heimar missiles in particular have been spectacularly effective, um, nevertheless, um, if you listen to Bankova, to Zelensky, they're complaining that they're not getting enough weapons um, and they're not getting the things they really want, which is tanks and planes and it was it was pointed out to me that you know things like a Heimar it's it's highly accurate so it's great at taking out command posts with generals in or taking down bridges or blowing up ammunition dumps but it doesn't kill lots of soldiers and that's the issue is that you need something that can attack infantry whereas the Russia has that in spades basically it's, it's artillery and the dumb missiles and uh it means that the Military aid the states is giving is going to prolong the war without being decisive because they're holding back on these infantry-threatening weapons. And it leaves the states, and I was just reading in the I think it's Wall Street Journal an Op-Ed saying, look, the, the strategy is actually that the states on the one hand is not committing itself and taking the bets on Ukrainian victory, but at the same time it's ensuring that Ukraine is not defeated. And that you're left in this, and poor Ukraine is left in this limbo where they're just going to keep fighting, but without the resources to decisively win. So what's the thinking behind the states to do this? Is it just sort of caught on the horns of a dilemma? Or do they actually cynically want to prolong the war in order to drain Russia of as much resources, both militarily and economically as it can?
1: Well, there, of course, you're deep into uh, the military side of the, of the uh, the conundrum. And I don't claim any particular expertise Mm. in that area. So um, I'm I'm not sure that anything I might say would be terribly helpful, uh, except to say this, we're seeing all parties dancing on the horns of the dilemma, uh, each in its own way. So you get the impression sometimes that America is willing to fight to the last Ukrainian um, you get the impression sometimes that the Ukrainians are willing to fight to the last American. Uh, the Europeans are sort of dancing in the middle, saying we're providing weapons, but not really. And then the Russians, well, where are the Russians at this point? They don't have that much manpower available. What they have is of low quality and, um, and so on. Um, is this a formula for a frozen conflict or or a semi-frozen conflict that goes on forever? Not necessarily because there are some destabilizers and high Mars is one of them.
0: Mm. What do you think it would take to stop the fighting? I mean, do you think if Putin takes all of Donbass, he would draw the line there and cut his losses and declare victory and then just dig in?
1: Ben, I think another three centuries would do nicely.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, and the economy uh the russian economy um we've said it is earning lots of cash we assumed that it's going to slow down um, as well i've been arguing as things get back to normal when the prices come down then you've actually denigrated the uh the productivity in russian economy uh quite significantly and it was only growing by two percent before the war and now it can't grow i mean said that um, uh, i think in march that um, she advised the companies you're going to have to go back two generations of technology which is an astounding thing to say in order to function i mean do, do you think how, how will that play out i mean will russia become like a north korea or will it manage to bypass it through its friends
1: if we assume that the sanctions regime remains in place. Uh, then I agree that the more pessimistic long-term predictions, no, not the more pessimistic, but pessimistic <clears throat> long-term projections, as opposed to as opposed to the word collapse that some people are using, the Russian economy will not collapse. but it will be constantly under the drag of the sanctions and also of its own um, inherited vulnerabilities and its own policy choices. To um, um, let, let take think an that... example to show what I mean. Uh-huh. Take, take the, uh, uh, take the um, automotive sector, which is clearly hard hit. Yes, sure, the sanctions have been responsible for, for the withdrawal of Renault. But uh, why is it that the Russians were in such a state of dependence? Because they opted 20 years ago for inviting Renault in to get a fast track solution to develop a mass, a modern mass car, so the sanctions then are superimposed on a situation of self-inflicted vulnerability.
0: Mm. The, um, I mean, to be fair to the Kremlin, they tried very hard. Uh, They they wanted to buy Opel uh, from the Germans Uh, and to basically import the technology. And actually the um, Merkel specifically uh, nixed that deal. Uh, Putin was extremely angry. Um, mm-hmm. And so they went for the next best thing and they were really pushing the car producers to localize their production. But people like Renault, they just weren't interested because uh, it's like, we want to keep this outside. Um, sure. and- I think there was a strategic view by the car producers backed by the government It's like we're not happy if you're going to transfer that technology to Russia because we're going to end up with a giant rival at the end of the day and no one really wanted to go there and it's left vulnerable, as you say. But let me ask you specifically, because um, one of the arguments is when this pain kicks in, which we assume is coming uh, and the quality of life falls, which it will. Um, Do you to what extent do you think that the the people will rebel against Putin. Uh, Do you think that there's a chance dissatisfaction growing to the point where you get popular dissent because at the moment the polls show everyone's very happy with him and supporting the war.
1: Well, I'll take out my best crystal ball. (laughs) And uh, give it a rub. Uh, Sure, if you imagine the war dragging on and on and on Um, effectively a stalemate Uh, and if you imagine the sanctions dragging on and on and on and dragging the performance of the russian economy downward um, sure you've got the elements in place that uh, people respond to an economy that is not performing well living standards that are not increasing well at a minimum you can say this that Putin has been extraordinarily lucky up until now. Imagine coming into power in 1999, just as oil prices are turning around, then 15 years of a bonanza, culminating with record high oil prices. Mm. The man is unbelievably lucky. Mm. Um, And Russians have supported him, particularly because of the economic performance, the best living standards Russians have had in their history for Mm. those 15 years, and then some carryover effect. Add to that the initial adrenaline that comes from beating up on a neighboring country. And (laughs) initially, so there you are. Hurrah, hurrah, Russia is back. Well, that'll get you some more adrenaline for a while. But as those two supports, as those two positives, start to, to wear down, what happens then? I, I don't pretend to know, my crystal ball suddenly stopped functioning.
0: Mm. No, there's a lot of people who are unhappy. Um, and, and actually the same is true, I think on the European side. I mean, here in Berlin, there's a growing sense of panic that uh, this winter is going to be very unpleasant. Uh, the heating bills are already shooting up to extraordinary levels. Uh, and until now, it hasn't cost you know the man in the street anything, um, but it will cost them. And then to what extent can, uh, the West has the same problem that, you know, as this economic war starts to bite, it's going to undermine their political base and the support for the war uh, on our side. So I think this autumn is going to be fraught uh, for everybody. Uh, But then listen, um, we have to wrap up there because we're we're running out of time. I want to thank you again very much uh, for taking the time to talk to me. And I highly recommend everyone look up your Substack list. Uh, It's got lots of great things in there. The car sector one was good. Um, LNG, you're writing about turbines next, isn't it?
1: That's right. Uh, And that'll have to do with the decline in the electrical gas-fired sector. What are the Russians going to do with all that gas that they're not going to be exporting to Europe? Well, they'll have to swallow it in their gas-fired power plants, which will continue to work inefficiently, but they will continue to work. And so that sector will not collapse either.
0: Sounds like the history of Russia as I know it. They just sort of muddled through. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Ben. Take care.
0: Take care.